I have had a particular message stirring in my heart for some months. I, I shared with, uh, with Brian, with some other guys a few months ago, that uh, I, I just have a burden. Uh, and, and I was talking with my son on the phone this last week. Uh, uh, he's uh, heavily involved in the Calvary Chapel down in Northern California. I'll be heading there tomorrow, by the way. I'm going to spend the week there. I was talking with him about uh, some of his, he and his wife's strategies in raising their children. Now, they have three daughters who attend public schools in California, gasp. Their mother, by the way, had been homeschooled uh, her entire life up until she became college aged. And so understand, this is not a negative commentary on homeschooling at all. (laughs) The contrary, that's a good thing. If you're a parent, you choose to do that. And yet our granddaughters, in our granddaughters' lives, their parents opted intentionally to send their children through the California public school system. Why? And in speaking with my son, he shared that they know that their daughters are going to be faced with living their lives in a world that is hostile towards Christians, absolutely hostile. And their concern is, and and that this is for them. I'm not saying that this is how everybody needs to roll, because I know that there are people that are very favorable to homeschooling, and I think that's a good thing. And in this case, they didn't want, they're in a very conservative area. And so they knew that there would be not as much as like going into the big city, the belly of the beast. But uh, their concern was that if they overly insulated their children, that they may not be adequately equipped to navigate those hostilities. They want their children to be exposed. And he reasoned, he said, by allowing them to be exposed to all that while they're being parented, it gives them a great advantage because they can work through the issues that are facing their children while they're still at home. So, by the way, as a proud grandpa, uh, I'm blessed with three girls. The two two youngers are on their church's worship team, yay. The older loves to sport her Christian t-shirts at school as she evangelizes her classmates and she's being effective, and, and, and she's bold. I, she's just bold. She's the same one that last time I went to California, on the way to the airport, my son's taking me back. She's sitting in the back seat reading her dad and I an article on deconstructionism. So <laughs> just give you an idea of how, how, she, how she is. So, but my point is, is that, that you know, for them, it's working because they're able to, again, to teach their children through, to, sh- to cover them parentally as they're going through and they're being exposed to this. And believe me, my daughters, even though they live in a conservative area, I was talking to my son again, he said their high school is increasingly woke. It's increasingly off the rails because of the California mandated education that is foisted upon them. In Matthew chapter 10, that's where we're going to be this morning. If you have a Bible, you can open it there. Jesus knows that in the coming days and months and years, his men are going to face serious, if not dire, circumstances for their testimony of him. And part of his equipping his men for the coming persecutions that they would endure was to send them out while he was still with them, while he may instruct and train them as they went. That's why he sent them out while he was still here. So as we come to verse 16 in Matthew 10, Jesus begins to challenge his men, uh, talking them, to them about the difficulties of that undertaking and to call attention to some of the things that might bring them to a place of being fearful, sometimes exceedingly fearful. By the way, he tells them three times in chapter 10 not to fear those who come against them. Interesting. So as we get into the text this morning, I want to, I, I, I totally, I just want you to understand there is a near and a far application to what's going on. And certainly there's some instruction that specifically relates to these 12 guys being sent out into towns and villages in Israel. 
That's the context. You'll see some of that. What we're talking about, it does relate specifically to them. However, certainly some of that relates to those who will go out in his name down through the centuries, down through church history and into the present day. There are a number of lessons here, and I pray that we can cover some of the high points. This is not going to be an exhaustive, in-depth study on these things that we're looking at, but my prayer is, again, that we can come out of this whole study with some deeper understanding of the, the world around us, the things that are going on, because we live in perilous time. So anything here that we read that's not for us by pedigree, these are, this is, these are Jews. They're going out, they're reaching Jews. But it is for us by principle. So uh, let's begin by reading verses 16 to 22 here in Matthew 10. We'll come back and unpack it. Uh, look at how this passage specifically applies to us in our day. Verse 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their their synagogues. You'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about uh, how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Now brother will deliver brother, a brother to death and a father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Interesting. So this morning I want to look at four categories of wolves that Jesus talks about here. Uh, we see that clearly in this passage. And so, But before we do, I want to go back to verse 16 and take a look at that because it's super important that we have a right understanding in approaching and interpreting this passage uh, because it lays some very important groundwork going in. So verse 16, he says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. What does he mean by that? Let's look at the imagery here with regard to sheep and wolves and serpents and doves. First, as to the nature of the gospel of Christ, we go out with the understanding that ours is a message of love and compassion. Got to get that. Thus, we are likened to sheep uh, who are among the most docile animals there are. Now, I was talking with um, Doug and Karen over here who are sheep ranchers (laughs) before service. And they were saying, yeah, well, we've got some that our dogs are afraid of. (laughs) But we'll just go with docile. (laughs) Because that's the point that Jesus is making. Um, So we are likened to sheep because they're docile. We have a message of love and compassion and mercy. It's also true, though, that when we're sent to an audience uh, out there in the world, that there are those who at times are violently opposed to us. Sometimes they're just passively opposed. Sometimes it's not so. I was uh, listening to a friend that has a church in California, and he was talking about sharing Christ in his city, and somebody pulled a gun on him. And it was like, well, okay, I guess we're done here. And that's kind of an extreme example, but there are times where, and, and times are here, where it, it's not going to take much for the scales to significantly tip where the church is under heavy persecution. It's because of our relationship with Christ. You've got to understand that Jesus said, Blessed are you and men revile you, cast insults at you, and say all manner of evil against you falsely because of me. 
They're not coming against you. They're coming against him. So the question is, looking at sheep and wolves and all, why would he do this? Because in the, in, in the animal kingdom, it's true, sheep are extremely vulnerable. They don't have any natural protection for themselves. I know Doug and Karen have llamas. They protect the sheep really well. But the point is, he's saying, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Wolves, and I checked it out, they're the number one apex predator on earth. <laughs> I thought lions maybe. No. And as I studied this out, he's saying, I'm sending you out among wolves. So think <laughs> about that. And so why would he do that? And I really do believe that he gives us the answer as we go back to chapter 9 in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, in Matthew nine thirty six, we read, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion, hold on to that, for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Interesting. Again, vulnerable. How can I be sent out as a sheep among wolves? Because I have a shepherd. And we'll see here that we don't go out in our own power. We go out in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we need to be sure that that is something that God is doing before we step into uh, a potentially dangerous situation. So sheep are the most vulnerable because they don't have a, a shepherd, because they don't have natural defenses. And, and think about this. <laughs> I was kind of laughing, uh, talking with these guys before church. And, and I was saying, have you ever seen a police sheep? <laughs> or, or an attack-trained sheep? No, yeah, the, the guy doesn't walk up with his sheep that's muzzled. He says, you know, if you're out of line, I'm, you know, it's, this is going to happen. Yeah, that's not how it works. Because they're docile by nature. So his instruction is that we don't go blindly or foolishly at the same time. So he says, yeah, you are going to go out as sheep, docile, and you have a message of love and compassion to a hostile world. That's all true. But he also says, I want you to go out uh, as innocent as doves and as shrewd as a serpent. What does he mean by that? I think really, you look at the nature of Jesus here in the Gospel of, of John, we see that, that he, is, he comes full of grace and truth. Now, grace, you can relate that to being innocent as doves, that we go out with a message of grace. Truth, we go out wisely. Uh, and grace and truth work together. Uh, they're two sides of the same coin. Grace governs the level of compassion that we have as we reach out to others. And truth governs the level of discernment that we have as to where others stand. Also, truth governs our perception of danger in a particular situation. There are times where it's dangerous. And folks, we're not talking about something that's coming. We're talking about something that's here. It's getting dangerous. That's why I have been burdened for this message for this church. We need to understand. We need to be sober-minded. We need to know that it's not just fun and games Christianity out there. These are, yes, and it's wonderful to have the joy of the Lord. It's wonderful to be in the fellowship of the saints. But our world is starting to spin, and it's spinning in a way that is absolutely hostile towards the church. And if you don't understand that, and you don't take that to heart, you will not be equipped. Jesus, our great model, mentor, he perfectly exemplified the, uh, this combination that I'm talking about of love and wisdom. And the reason he's sending his men out is because he's teaching them the same. That's why he says, you're going to go out 
need to be harmless. They need to be uh, as sheep in the midst of wolves. You need to be harmless as doves, wise as serpents in this. You need to be wise. It's dangerous. So in the rest of this passage, Jesus identifies four types of wolves. And I want to spend the balance of our time this morning looking at them in the context of their relevance in our world today. This is not a deep dive on expositional teaching in Matthew chapter 10, but Jesus is talking about these things and it is really worth our time to be able to dig that out and to directly apply these things to what we see going on around us, to our lives individually. After that, we'll come back and, and look at how that applies in practical, sober-minded ways. So in verse 17, we read, but he says, beware of men for they'll deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. So here, Jesus speaks this first one. He speaks of religious wolves. Now, in Matthew 17, or Matthew 7, I mean, in verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. So in Acts chapter 20, Paul tells the Ephesian elders that religious wolves come in two ways. He says they'll come from outside the church, and they also come from within. Now, understand, I'm not speaking about our congregation per se. That's not where I'm going with this. But I'm talking about the broader, capital C, church. Let me tell you what a religious wolf is not. (laughs) They're not people that go to that church, all right? There's a lot of variety in churches out there. And just because that church doesn't line up with the style of worship that you like doesn't necessarily mean that it's being led by wolves. That's not not the point. Now, because they're not people, another thing is they're not people who are, they enjoy a different style of worship than you. I remember one time I was coming out of a pastor's conference at Lake Tahoe this many years ago, and I was riding with a guy because there was a guy at the conference that did Christian metal, right? And this guy was sideways. He was like, ah, that's of the devil, you know, and I'm like, no, it's not, (laughs) It was two of people that identify with that kind of music. You got to understand this garden that we live in called Christianity has a lot of variety. Got to be careful not to identify people as wolves because they don't do it like you. <laughs> They're not churches or organizations that hold to minor doctrinal differences than we do. That's not it. So what is a religious wolf? They can look, sound very convincing, very spiritual. They often attract a considerable following because the appeal is to the flesh, to the natural man. Religious wolves are those who would subtly pervert the gospel of Christ. They don't get up in the morning or get up before their congregations and say, we're not going to pervert the gospel. No, that's not what happens. It's subtle. That's why we teach God's word here and we will never stop teaching God's word here, verse by verse, book by book. It's safe. You, we're going to get the whole counsel of God. We go, you know, we, I love the, the easy stuff, the hard stuff, and everything in between. Religious wolves are those untaught. The Bible talks about them. talks about them being untaught and unstable people who twist the scriptures to their own destruction, also to the great detriment of others. Jesus, in his seven woes to the religious leaders of his day, said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You go about on land and sea for one proselyte, convert, And when you have him, you make him twice the son of hell as yourselves. That tells me that there's equal responsibility from the person that's leading and the person that's following. It is essential that you, whether it's this church or another, that you identify in the body of Christ with a church that is putting forth God's word. It is absolutely critical because they're out there. 
Now, as I studied for today, I began to look at examples. <laughs> and I'm telling you, the examples that are out there on the spiritual landscape are, some of them are absolutely cringeworthy. And some of them, I walk away scratching my head going, how could people believe, how could they buy into that nonsense? And you don't need me, I mean, spend a few minutes looking at, at a great deal of, of so-called Christian media, Christian TV stuff, and, and you'll see they're out there. But let me give you a couple from headlines this week, all right? Um, here's, here's one. Flamey Grant, not Amy Grant, but Flamey Grant, becomes the first drag queen performer to top the Christian music charts on iTunes. Seriously? Yeah. And part of that is because there's a whole lot of buzz and people are going to check and figure out what's going on. I, I'll grant that. But this is a woman or a man who is dressed as a woman who's declaring Jesus is gay. And I'm like, that is absolute, that is, that's not heresy, that's blasphemy. And people are, they're eating it up. Here's another one. Vadi Bakum, who I, I really respect, he identifies three red flags churches are capitulating to, uh, that churches are capitulating to modern neo-Marxist ideology. Uh, the first is there's no commitment to a systematic exposition of the Bible. We've talked about that. And uh, folks, that has to take place. You have to take a left turn when it comes to the Word of God in order to replace it with the doctrines of men. That's why I, I share with you guys, we don't teach from the Bible, we teach the Bible. Because if I want to teach from the Bible, I can grab a scripture out of left field and then go some, spin some yarn and have you thinking, oh, what a spiritual thing. It's not. You've got to be discerning. That's the wisest serpent's part. Um, second red flag is the church's alignment with post-Christian culture. And this is a big deal. I, I look at churches that I have held in respect that have begun to go off the rails. And some of them are completely off the rails. And it, it blows my mind because preachers are preaching messages that resonate with the values and agendas of secular culture, of the secular world. Yeah, I, I don't care what kind of title you give it. When you want to call a, 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 a homosexual affirming church progressive, that's not progress. It's the opposite. It's off the rails. Another one that Vadi Bakum talks about is this apologizing for essential Christian doctrines is another red flag indicating a departure from true biblical Christianity. Apologizing for the creation myth is not a myth. It happened. For the gospel, apologizing for the gospel, oh, well, you know, all roads kind of lead to God, yeah. For Christian morality, that's another. It's a big deal. Wait a minute. I thought that we stood again. I thought that sin was what put Jesus on the cross. And now we're just going to say it's okay. It's not okay. Those promoting these kind of ideologies certainly are religious wolves. They're enemies of the cross, enemies of Christ. I don't care how well they present. You know, I, I, was, I did a whole series on counterfeit religions many years ago at my church in California. And what I wanted to do was have this big, beautiful, beefy-looking cheeseburger sitting up there with all of the stuff on it. And, and I, I didn't get a chance to do it, but, but I, I wanted to be able to pull the top bun off and see that I'd hollowed the patty out and filled it with decon, with rat poison. Because that's how the enemy works. It's exactly how he works. It can look good. It can appeal. People don't get big followings because somebody's a lousy orator. They don't get big followings because somebody's telling them things they don't want to hear. You gotta be wise. I want to make a distinction here too. It's important. We don't attack people. 
any more than sheep attack wolves. That's not a good idea. <laughs> and I don't need to ask Doug and Karen either. I mean, if sheep tried to attack a wolf, that's wolf food. That's it. Second Corinthians chapter 10 gives us some instruction on this. In verses 4 and 5, we read, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Not pulling down people, pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. That's where our focus needs to be. So, you know, and I need to move on here. There's more that could be said on each one of these, but I want you to understand that the wolves are out there. And I want you to be on guard. And the way that you're going to be on guard is if you spend time in his word. You spend time in fellowship. You spend time in prayer. And folks, that's the recipe for spiritual health. Anything else, you become vulnerable. You become like that sheep that's not covered by the shepherd. The second time type of wolves that Jesus speaks of is in verse 18. He says, uh, and here in verse 18, you'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. So here we see political or government, governmental wolves. <laughs> you know, I never thought as a pastor that I would be in a culture where I have concerns that when I say this, knowing it's going out live stream, that I could get in trouble. I don't care. We're going to give it. Persecution of Christians by the state. It has existed since the beginning. I did some some research. The Roman Empire was a horribly oppressive government. It was very totalitarian. We'll talk about that in a bit. From AD 30, roughly the time that Jesus went to the cross, to AD 311, Rome had 54 emperors. Out of them, 12 made it the state's business to attempt to destroy Christianity. So this isn't something new. This has been going for a long time. And we're going to talk about the reason why, because we are in a war. Globally, uh, persecution of the church is increasing exponentially in in our post-Christian era. And yeah, when I got saved, it was still, it was at the tail end of the Christian era. We live in a post-Christian era. And it, it, it blows my mind when I talk to the average young person these days, and you talk about God, they want to know which God. Now, back in the days when I was a kid, it was like, you talk about God, they knew you were talking about at least, at the very least, the God of the Judeo-Christian ethic. That's gone. We need to be wise. Open Doors. Have you ever, uh, there's an organization called Open Doors. It's an organization that publishes an annual list of the nations within which Christian persecution levels range from high to extreme. They do the top 50, and, and it changes every year. You can go through on this scale and, and kind of slide the bar back and forth. It's a great website uh, just to be able to, to know how to pray for oppressed peoples in our world. So out of that top 50, it, when I, I know that, that 34 of the top countries, nations on earth, where persecution is just out of control, uh, they were run by an Islamic-styled government. Religious persecution is real. Now, some are not. To be fair, the, the number one was North Korea, uh, where to be a Christian, to be, have that be found out, means that they come and they cart you and your family and everybody else off to a camp. Number seven was Nigeria, where in the headlines, and, and again, I could go in depth on these, but horrible, horrible genocide is happening in Nigeria and other countries around the world in the name of the church in the name of Christ because people don't want to hear it. We're in a war. Let's bring it home a little bit. Do you guys remember the beginning of COVID? <laughs> Do you remember what the first steps were if you had a positive diagnosis? I got a call from the county. 
And, and I'm not here to beat that drum. That's, that's gone. But I was like, seriously, you're calling me? They called it contact tracing. I was like, oh, okay, whatever. I got an app on my phone and it, it had this thing that would give me proximity of other COVID people if I wanted to turn it on. I was like, I am not turning that thing on. But at the same time, pastors were being arrested during the pandemic. Churches were being deemed unessential. Many had heavy fines levied. Uh, Calvary Chapel San Jose, still in the news, they just lost. A million-dollar lawsuit uh, had heavy fines levied against them for determining to stay open and minister to God's people. Now, other churches, our church included, pushed back. We were part of a, a lawsuit against the governor of Oregon. We won for the day, and then the state Supreme Court, which is liberal, overturned it and uh, all of that. But we sent a message that if you're going to push on the church, the church is going to push back. I took a lot of heat for that, but you know what? I bring it. I'm not being foolish. I'm just saying, you know what? We are not going to, we're just not, I'm just not going to bend over and let these guys come in. I pictured when the governor said, this is how you cannot take communion. That was it for me. Again, I, I don't want to beat that drum. We got invited to join another lawsuit, and I said no, because I didn't want to be known as the litigious church. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the church that sues everybody. Yeah, that, that, no, because that's not our mission. But at that point, at that moment, it was part of what we needed to do to stand up, because it wasn't right. The government invasively stepped into nearly every area of life. And, and I'll leave it to you to decide the motives of men's hearts and all of that, and I don't want to get too far down that road because you might be wondering by now, what does that have to do with government or political wolves? Well, I think it has a lot to do with it. But let me talk about what's going on now. Not the pandemic, but now. The Oxford Dictionary defines totalitarianism as, and this is a quote, a system of government that is centralized and dictatorial and requires complete subservience to the state. As our nation continues to spiral down the path, of totalitarianism. We need to understand Christianity is wholly incompatible with that style of human government. It is oil and water. It does not fit. In John 10, 27, Jesus tells us, my sheep, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. They don't follow the state. In following Jesus, our heart's desire, of course, is to be good citizens. I am not advocating rebellion or, or you know, that nonsense talk about that in a bit. But the, 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 and truly, there's no value in anarchy or rebellion. There's, that's not what we're called to do. Wise as serpents, innocent as doves, sheep in the midst of wolves. Hang on to that because that he gives us such great balance in that statement. And I want to be clear, it's not about our becoming hostile towards the government. <laughs> and while we are ripe for it, I mean, our nation... <laughs> Uh, God never uses the church. And understand this. You find me a place in the New Testament where it's not so. He never uses the church as an instrument for judgment. It's not our place. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I also think that there are some in power that are so evil that they instigate rebellion because it gives them the ability to justify using force to control the population. Remember, we're sheep. Let's look at it from the other end. The state's disposition towards the church is becoming increasingly hostile. That's the thing. Why? And here's the bottom line. As I mentioned, they're not compatible. That the, 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 the people in power cannot tolerate a people whose allegiance is to God and not solely to the state. It, that, that's why I say it's, it's not compatible. It doesn't mean I walk around, you know, with my fist in the air. It means that I understand in my heart 
that it's not uh, th- that where we're going as a nation is not compatible with what I believe, with the one to whom I am obedient. Be careful. Be careful. We live in perilous times. Oh, how my heart has been more and more burdened as we go. We need to walk in the knowledge that we're sheep in the midst of wolves. Do not be deceived. Jesus goes on here. He gives instructions on how to handle ourselves in the event political or government persecution comes. Verse 19. He says, but when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. And to that, I just say, praise the Lord. I'm not alone in this. I have a shepherd. You see, that's that whole thing. How can he send sheep out in the midst of wolves, knowing that the wolves, what their intent is to eat the sheep? I mean, that's what wolves do. Because we have a shepherd. He says, don't worry about it. Now, I want to bring some context to this here. And I've heard guys take this out of context when they're preparing to teach God's word. (laughs) That's like, uh, no, (laughs) that's not how it works. That's not what's being said here. Now, we use the, uh, there's a popular term that we use. uh, And we might tell somebody, hey, I've got this. You know, I I mean, when we, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's handled. Don't worry about it. I've got it. Well, that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, should we ever find ourselves in that type of a situation? He's saying that we can have perfect trust in that moment, knowing the Holy Spirit would speak through us in the event we're fearful or unprepared. In other words, he's saying, I've got this. Don't be fearful. Understand, I'm in control. You didn't get up this morning and, and you're not on your own here. You have a loving shepherd who wants to protect you, who wants to, to pour into you, who wants to guide the course of your life, even if and especially when you're in perilous situations. Uh, more could be said, but let's move on here. Verse 21, Now brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Now, I haven't heard of that happening with anybody lately in my group that I run with, but it is happening and it has happened. What we're talking about here is familial wolves or family wolves. The people from in within their own families that are violently aggressive sometimes, at least very aggressive, and oppose the gospel. Jesus knew that sometimes the gospel would divide families. That some of the most bitter persecution would take place among families. I think about the church in China where you could be, and it's house churches there because they're largely underground. And where if one member of the family doesn't like it, suddenly somebody shows up and that family is broken apart violently at times. In the first century, turning to Christ very often was met with severe persecution, especially for the Jews that had embraced Messiah. Uh, Messianic Christians would be disgraced. They would often lose their homes, their livelihoods, their family connections. Their whole life would fall apart. And I know uh, of a guy that, that he was in my church in California. He was a bishop in the LDS church. And his daughter got saved, was going to my, our, our fellowship. And I would uh, talk to her periodically. And, and, she, and then all of a sudden, word came that he had taken his own life. He'd swam out in the very same lake where we did our baptism. Because he had come to Christ and realized that the cost for him to identify with Christ, because his life was so surrounded and embedded and entrenched in that 
religious organization that he thought it was too great a cost because the persecution would be so great. So don't tell me it doesn't happen. It's there. It's subtle. Nobody, again, you don't read headlines in the paper about that, but that is word for word what his daughter told me. He was secretly seeing her on the side and asking her about this faith in Christ that she had come to, and he was in awe. And I believe I'll see him in heaven. I'm convinced that one of the main reasons that if you read the letter of Hebrews, read it with with the, with that type of persecution uh, in mind. Families turning on family. Uh, it's, I've read there's speculation that the Apostle Paul was married, but that his wife didn't convert when he had the Damascus Road experience, and that was kind of it for him. But I, again, that's that's secular, you know, parad- or, uh, um, secular history, secular stuff, and I, and I don't put a lot of credibility in that. However, it does happen in our day. Uh, and I believe that, yeah, if you read the letter uh, to the Hebrews in the New Testament, that a great deal of the reason that, that letter was written was because people were discouraged because they were coming under heavy fire from other people, from the Jews. A friend that pastors, uh, he did, he's retired now. Uh, I believe that yeah, there's somebody else who's pastoring his church, part of his family. A uh, guy by the name of Leo, uh, he was my pastor for a short time up in Gridley, California, where I'm headed tomorrow. But um, he planted a church on Interstate 8 in San Diego. It's a busy highway. And he had this reader board as one of those great big reader boards. I think it had been a grocery store or whatever. And they had the reader board where they, you know, they put you know, tomatoes, 98 cents or whatever. They had this big reader board that the church decided to use. And it was right outside advertising to traffic on Interstate 8. And one time he put on the reader board, he put marriages restored, kids off drugs, lives transformed, inquire within. (laughs) And I just thought, what a great use of that sign. So one day a young guy walks in. He was obviously strung out on drugs. He walks through the church's door one day and uh, with this sign out front, he had seen it and, and it was like, my life is just unraveling. So he spent some time with the staff and he learned about the love of Christ and he gave his life to Jesus. So this guy hit the ground running. Before long, he's attending every service. He's devouring God's word. He's getting involved in ministries and he's totally enjoying not only being off drugs, but having purpose and meaning and, and direction in his life. That's a big deal for him, obviously. Well, one day, a very angry couple walked through the church's door and demanded to see the pastor. We want to see the pastor, and we're mad. And they let it know, be known they were not happy. So it was this guy's parent. And when he came out, and when the pastor came out to greet him, they unloaded, and Leo told me about this, <laughs> they unloaded on him, very aggressively demanded to know what the people at that church had done to their son. It was like, never mind the fact that their son's life had been spiraling out of control. He was enslaved to the drugs. Who cares about that? All they could see was a radically changed life, and they didn't like it. And they made that known to their son as well. I've often wondered what happened with him. Persecution takes place. Families turn. Let me make it personal. I spend time with a lot of you, and I know firsthand that some of you are dealing with Christ-rejecting children or family members. I want you to know that God sees your pain. Truly, he does. He hears the cry of your heart. It's hard. It's tough, especially when it's someone that you really love and you see them aggressively against the gospel and therefore aggressively against you. I want to encourage you, don't give up. Keep praying for them. Love them sacrificially. And rest assured that they, even though outwardly they're aggressive, they're hostile, they're watching your life. 
And they're seeing how you roll when it comes to Christ. Moving on here, the fourth, the final one we're going to look at is societal or cultural woes. In verse 22, he says, you'll be hated all by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Now, when he says he who endures to the end will be saved, again, this is a passage that gets misquoted. This is not saying that you're not going to be saved if you don't endure to the end. What he's doing, this is an encouragement. Remember, he's sending his men out and he's saying, look, it could get really tough out there and you've got to just, you know, just hang in there, endure to the end because what happens at the end? <laughs> you're going to be in heaven. That's ultimate salvation here. So he's not saying you got to, you got to, you got to do this or you're in trouble. That's not, no. And I, again, I hear people say all kinds of goofy things. This is essentially saying that it's not a works-based thing that he's getting at. He's trying to encourage them saying, look, there's a bigger picture in place. And that bigger picture is heaven. The bigger picture is presence of Christ for eternity. In the end, you will be saved. So hang in there, press in, get, yeah, get through it. So I want to talk about this. I want to talk about societal or cultural wolves. Now, this is important. This is really important. It's very much worth looking at. Uh, at this through a biblical lens and worldview. Because through that understanding, we're able to make sense of the dystopian world that we've suddenly found ourselves in. Now, does anybody else feel, I mean, like I do, that you woke up one day in 2020 and the whole world had shifted? Brian, I've been talking about that. Just some interesting things. It's like I got. It's like I remember getting up that morning, looking at the television, and going, "What on earth is going on? And why aren't they doing anything about it?" Suddenly, all of a sudden, topics that had been in the background for years—they were. It's like they were thrust to the forefront, and they were amplified. Racism, climate change, the trans movement, crime, police, mental illness, drug abuse, homelessness, government, and media corruption. All of that seems they, it's like they all hit us at once. You want to know something? They did. At the same time, cities were being burned, destroyed. Anyone who spoke up was either canceled or arrested. Cancel culture is a real thing. We live in a bubble, folks. I'm telling you, the body of Christ is a wonderful place. I love that we have a loving church, but this is a bubble. <laughs> it's a nasty world out there. And many of you are exposed to it because of your jobs or interaction that you have. But understand, there, is, there are things going on behind this that we need to look at because we need to understand it and we need to be able to stand against it. I guess what I'm saying is if you've ever wondered, and I'm not, this isn't a curse word, if you've ever wondered what the hell is going on, I want to assure you, you're, you're correct in that. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and width 6 cubits. That's big. He set it upon the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now dropping down to verse 4, Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Get this. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. I just think that's remarkable. Isn't that wild? Refusal to bow down to a man-made idol would result in lives being destroyed. Could that ever happen to us? Ephesians chapter 6, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. 
For you don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. We're in a war. Now the Greek word in verse 11 for wiles is methodia. What it means is trickery, crafty scheming with the intent to deceive. There's a new deceit, a new trickery, a new scheme of the devil that many people haven't heard of or have heard of, but they don't fully understand. There's a new scheme of Satan. It's a new gold image. It's a new religion in America and in the West. And I'm not talking about something that's out there that we need to be concerned about because it's coming. It's here. Make no bones about it. It's here. And we have no choice but to deal with it. It's shaping and redefining society as it goes. This religion demands that all bow down before it, submit to it, and align with it. And failure to do so can result in one's life being destroyed. You read about it. This new religion masquerades behind the image of compassion and justice. It looks and sounds good on the outside. It holds great appeal, again, to the, to the flesh, to the natural man. But remember Paul in 1 Corinthians, he says, you know what? As a spiritual person, you have the advantage of seeing through the eyes of the spirit and through the eyes of the flesh. You get to see both sides. The natural man, all he sees is what's in front of him. And this stuff looks good to that guy, that woman. But looking inside, it's a bitter poison from the pit of hell. It's totally incompatible with our biblical Christian worldview, as well as our Western values. That religion is wokeism. Many of us, we've heard the word woke or wokeness or wokeism, but we may not know much about it. And and this is not going to be a a deep dive on wokeism, but I want to go around, kind of look at the parameters of what drives this thing. Woke is a term that we see often, but what does the phrase actually mean? Webster's Dictionary defines it as someone who is alert or awake to injustice in society, especially racism. That's Webster's Dictionary. So on the surface, it sounds harmless, doesn't it? After all, shouldn't we as Christians all care about and be awake to injustice, to the sin of racism, because that is sin? Folks, the problem isn't in the what, it's in the how. God's word is clear. Jesus is the light of the world. He's the person who awakens us, shines his light into our heart. Enlightenment, folks, and and, hang on to this, enlightenment does not come from an, an idea. That's what woke means. It means to be enlightened. It doesn't come from an idea. It comes from a person. His name is Jesus. He died in your place. 1 Corinthians 15.34, the Apostle Paul says, Awake to righteousness. Don't sin. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, he says, You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the, the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. 1 Peter 5.8, be vigilant, be sober, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So yeah, are we to be awake? Yes, we are to be awake. We're to be awake to righteousness, awake to sin and repentance, awake against the wiles of the devil, because guess what? He hates you. He wants to destroy you. It's personal. Through Jesus' death, resurrection, we have forgiveness for our sins. We're redeemed. We're saved. If you don't know Christ this morning, that's the transaction. It's not about getting on the bandwagon of wokeness. Folks, that, that's like trying to put a, a, a Band-Aid on a shotgun wound. It doesn't work. It doesn't fit. It never reaches the inner man. It's not our skin color. It's not our, our wealth status or our history or the injustices of our ancestors. That's not what defines us. 
as God, by his Holy Spirit, through his word, shows us our sin. Yeah, we repent of our sin. By the power of the Holy Spirit, our lives are transformed into the image of Christ. That's where it's at. That's what enlightenment looks like. And yeah, if an injustice has occurred, those involved need to be held accountable. Absolutely. They need to pay the consequences for that which they've done. and, And folks, our entire justice system supports that process. That's where it's at. But it's not what the religion of wokeness teaches. It teaches an entirely different worldview. I'm going to talk about it for a minute, and we'll wrap up. Wokeness is built upon the theory known as critical theory. You've probably heard it, maybe read about it, maybe you know about it, or CT. Critical theory views the world through a singular lens of power, the oppressor and the oppressed, okay? It's very narrow. The oppressor is the one in power and dominates the oppressed. Critical theorists deny that there, that it's possible to separate someone's individual identity from their group identity. It's, it's not, that's not where it's at. It's not about individualism. It's about the group. A person is no longer an individual with their individual thoughts and actions. You are either the oppressor or the oppressed. That's it. Individuality is stripped away. This is Marxism, by the way. This is neo-Marxism. And, and at its core, <laughs> it's horrible. Uh, not only does individuality get stripped away, but critical theory states that our identity as an individual depends on whether or not we're part of an oppressed group or an oppressor group. Uh, And then that occurs along some particular axis of identity, such as age, gender, race, ethnicity, sexuality. All of those are buzzwords in the woke world. For example, all men are part of a dominant oppressor group. Sorry, guys, that's where it's at. All women are members of a subordinate or consequently oppressed group. And it's lumping everyone into a category. And folks, I love that in in God's word, he says none of that matters. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. And no, he's not talking about gender politics. But he's saying, but a new creation, that's where it's at. It's not about this. So a couple of examples here. It, it, again, talking about age, if you're old, you oppress the young. Doesn't matter if you're old and have never oppressed a young person. That doesn't count. Gender, if you're a man, you oppress women. Doesn't matter if you are a man and you've never oppressed a woman. Doesn't come into play. Race, if you're white, then you oppress blacks or people of color. Doesn't matter if you're white and have never oppressed someone else. Doesn't matter. So I was looking at this and I thought, as an old white male, I'm not going to do well <laughs> with wokeism. <laughs> so <laughs> my bad. Each individual's identity, the point is, is seen either through the lens of being oppressed or being the oppressor. And it depends on their class, their race, their gender, sexuality, and a number of other categories. Again, not a deep dive, just kind of brushing along the surface so you have an idea of what's being said and what's behind that. When they talk about giving reparations to ancestors, it's like because I am a member of an oppressor group and my ancestors um, oppressed a member of an oppressed group, then we need to pay them for that. It's just like absolute hogwash. How do you get there from here? You get there because you are a sheep without a shepherd. The goal of the movement is nothing less than complete dismantling, rebuilding of Western culture from the ground up. Make no mistake, that's the intent. That's the goal. That's why the world is being torn down around us. That's why you woke up that day in 2020 and everything had shifted. I also believe that that is the Laodicean church, not just in the government, not just in society, 
not just with family, but there are prophetic significances here that I don't have time to go into this morning. The thing about it is, is by its very nature, the church stands in the way of all of this because again, we don't serve that master. I praise God that we don't, but folks, you got to understand as this takes hold more and more, unless the Lord comes, it is going to impact your life more and more. Therefore, I've had this again, I've had this tremendous burden that We need to be able to understand this stuff as it comes. We need to identify where it's coming from. We need to understand what to do about it. Uh, There's so much more I can say with regard to the religion of wokeism. I want to encourage you, do some study on your own. Uh, Check it out. But I want to come full circle. I want to remember the context here is Jesus sending people out. The question becomes, why would we face such daunting, even life-threatening obstacles in taking the gospel to those around us? When he's saying, look, this could be really bad. This could cost you your life. This is not fun and games. The answer is because there are those out there or those in our sphere of influence who we trust will respond to God's love. They will respond to his compassion. They will respond because they'll identify that, yeah, I've been that sheep and I need a shepherd. Therefore, we must go. Not an option. Jesus gave each and every one of us the ministry of reconciliation. He says, I want you to go out. I want you to reconcile a lost, crazy, hurting, screwed up, upside down world to me. Why? Because I died for them as much as I died for you. I want you to go out as sheep in the midst of wolves, but I want you to be smart about it. I want you to be wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove, because my message is not one about we're going to just correct the society. My mission is one that, you know what? There's a better way to live. There is a Lord and a Savior that took your life into consideration when he went to that cross. That's what it's about. So you might be thinking, well, Pastor John, I'm not very good at witnessing. (laughs) Neither was Moses. God said, all right, fine, I'll send your brother with you. You might be thinking, well, I'm shy. Well, you know what? So am I. I don't like to risk. Sounds pretty edgy, Pastor. This is very risky. As people in my mind this morning, I'm thinking, oh, that's, that's pushing it. Yeah, maybe it is. But let's be honest. While there are times that it's a joy to share the gospel, there are definitely times where it is daunting or it's hard, where you know people are going to push back, risk. Jesus goes on in this chapter to illustrate that it's not wise to attempt to share the gospel in the midst of hardcore rejection. Yes, we need to be wise. There are times he says, you know what? You need to run to another city. Don't have time to go there, but it's here in chapter 10 of Matthew. If that person, if they're rejecting to that degree, all right, time to get out of there. <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm not saying that, we, that we're stupid about it. We need to be wise. We need to be discerning. We need to have that balance of love and compassion and discernment and wisdom. But you might be thinking, well, I, you know, just really not very good at it. I'm going to close uh, because there are times where the Holy Spirit presses us onward. I want to share a little bit from my life. And this is something that happened to me a week ago today. As Pastor Brian mentioned when he was uh, teaching last week, uh, I finally had the opportunity to meet the guy that saved my life when I collapsed in the parking lot in Lincoln City a year ago this last Wednesday. I didn't know his perspective on this, and it blew me away. Okay, Briefly, very briefly, because I don't like making this about me, but there's a great point here, and I want you guys to understand it because it fits with what we're talking about this morning. Briefly, my wife and I are crabbing uh, there by Moses, Celeste Bay in Lincoln City. 
She goes to the ladies' room. I go to load the car. She comes out. I'm lying on the ground dead, literally dead. Eyes open, tongue hanging out, bladder released, dead. A guy, this guy, his name is Michael. He's a couple of cars over. He had just pulled up and he was getting his waders on so he could go fishing. And he hears the noise, looks over, sees me lying there. He goes over and about that time a young woman walked up. She dialed 911 and the 911 operator saying, is he breathing? No, he's not breathing. You need to roll him over. Well, and we were laughing at the restaurant last week. He's like, I'm a big guy. <laughs> and so like dead weight, roll him over. Okay, well, we'll try it. Yeah, so he gets me rolled over. And this woman's on the phone with 911. Now, this is the part that blew me away. He said, the only thing I knew about CPR was what I'd seen on television. I'm thinking, oh, my life's in that guy's hands, you know. <laughs> so he says, but, you know, so I got on top of you and the, the guy and my wife came up. She started cradling your head or put a talent or whatever it was. His wife is RN, right? But and I'll get to that in a minute. So he, he does this whole thing and, and the girl with the phone is holding the phone down and, and he gets on top of me. She's saying, okay, find a place between his nipples and cup your hands. And she's giving him blow by blow, step by step instructions on how to do this. He has no clue. So he starts doing it. And then the operator starts giving him the timing, right? The girl sets the phone on the ground next to my body. And, and his wife says, you know, I'm trained in CPR. I can take over. He goes, no, I've got a, I, I've got a rhythm going now. <laughs> and so and he's like, no, get away. And so anyway, I don't think he said get away. But he does that until the police show up. They take over. And then the ambulance guys show up and they take over. And it was probably about 10 minutes or so. I mean, had this guy not been where he was, I would not be talking to you this morning. Here's my point. We live in a dangerous, perilous, crazy world. Here's a guy that doesn't know a thing about what to do, but he's willing. He gets down on his knees and sits on top of my big lug body and goes to work, not because he knows what he's doing, but because he's got instructions. He's plugged into the source. I got saved by a man that had little idea of what he was doing. I don't know about you, but that's a great encouragement to me when I put that into the spiritual realm. You don't have to be a big crafty orator. You don't have, you just have to be available. Jesus says here, he says, don't worry about what to say. Like if you're under arrest, but you also don't have to worry about what to say. If you are in a situation where you're saying, Lord, I've been praying for this person. I just want them to come to you. I want to they're going to die if they don't give their life to you. The stakes could not be higher. Are you willing? Are you willing to get on top of that situation in a spiritual way and just listen for instructions? That's God's heart for you, for me. That's what he wants to do in our lives, in our church. Let's pray. Father, perilous times, wolves all around. Lord, we're just sheep. You've given us a powerful message, a message of reconciliation to reconcile a really messed up world to you. Lord, we don't just want you. We need you. We're desperate for your touch. We're desperate for you in those situations. We're desperate as we deal with family members, situations that just look completely hopeless. We're desperate for you to meet us in our despair. We're desperate for you to meet us in our joy. Lord, we just... If, if there was ever a time where we needed to be a people who are set apart, who live set apart, 
We recognize that it's here and it's now. It's not something down the road that's in the theoretical. Lord, we live in a perilous day. And yet we know you've got this. We know that our lives are in the palm of your hand. We know that as you instruct us, as we move in and out in our daily lives, that you want to be the one that we check in with first. Speaking with someone this week, Father, sometimes we just forget and we go off on our own. And yet, Lord, let us be a people who are so plugged into you. Let us be a people that are so in tune with the work of your Holy Spirit that we are leading off not in the arm of the flesh, but they are leading off trusting that you are in the situations that we find ourselves in. Lord, let us be wise as serpents, looking all around because the days are evil. Let us be gentle as doves because you've given us a message of encouragement and hope and grace, knowing, Lord, that we're sheep totally dependent upon our shepherd, our great shepherd. Father, thank you for loving us so much that you would go and send your son to that cross to die in our place. Let today mark a renewed commitment to going about our Father's. We love you. We praise you.